0: On the podcast, illustrating honor with a cat on every cover. Science fiction is a thousand years old, and we have the proof. Time travelers, mad scientists, testy tree cats, ninjas, magicians, and machine guns. Plus part 14 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have Bain cover artist extraordinaire David Mattingly. David has done literally hundreds of Bane covers. He's the artist on David Weber's Honor Harrington books in the last 12 years or so. We'll talk with David about depicting Honor, his many Bane covers, and much, much more coming up. Also, we have an interesting conversation with artist and writer Ron Miller. Ron is the creator, cover artist, and curator of a fascinating and unique collection of over a hundred science fiction e-books called the Ron Miller Science Fiction Classics Collection. If you thought science fiction started with H.G. Wells or even Mary Shelley, well, no. These are amazing finds from the past that Ron has unearthed, and by the past we're talking 1700s, 1800s, and early 20th century is just amazing stuff. If that's not enough, we continue our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom with Part 14. First, Bain Associate Editor Laura Haywood-Corey joins me for the news. We have an amazing group of new eARCs available at BainEbooks.com at the moment. Now, an eARC is the hybrid of an elephant and a hippopotamus. Really weird-looking animal. Surprisingly, the male hippo is the father in such circumstances, so conception must take place underwater.
1: You know, that's that's really not how it works, right?
0: I got that wrong again. Okay, what is an eARC, Laura?
1: It's an electronic advanced reader's copy. It's straight from the author's pen, and they're available on baneebooks.com almost as soon as we get them from the author.
0: So you get them well before the publication date.
1: Full of typos and other mistakes that will be fixed before publication.
0: So, I stand enlightened. The e-arcs that are now available are Tree Cat Wars by David Weber and Jane Linsgold. This is the sequel to Fire Season and A Beautiful Friendship, and these are all about Honor Harrington's ancestor, Stephanie, when she was a young teen. Oh, we have Michael Z. Williamson's collection of short stories and nonfiction articles called Tour of Duty. The subtitle of this one is Stories and Provocations, and you better believe that Mike speaks his mind in this one. What else, Laura?
1: Well, we have The Undead Hordes of Kangool by John F. Mertz, e ER. This is ninjas and magic users in a kind of mythic Asian past. Looks like ton of fun. And there's even more, such as Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo, science-based zombies, young woman heroine, John Ringo. Well,
0: that gives me a pretty good idea. Enough said there. Enough said. Okay. Also in eARC, there's the third book in the Grimnor Chronicles, Warbound, by Larry Korea. This is that gritty urban fantasy sort of alternate history 1930s with magic series. It's, it's a great book. We're going to have an interview with Larry Korea on our 5th of July podcast, too, so look forward to that.
1: It sounds interesting, and there's even more. We've got Steve White's latest Jason Thanu time travel books available in eARC. This is Pirates of the Time Stream. It's the one where Captain Morgan himself makes an appearance.
0: Yeah, I could use some Captain Morgan right now, but alas, no.
1: Alas, no. It is too early in the day here.
0: So those are the eARCs that are currently available. Get the book you want as soon as you want it, albeit with a few typos. Or a lot. Or a lot. But early, early, early. It could be months earlier than than you normally would get it. Get these eARCs at BaneEbooks.com now. We want to welcome artist David Mattingly to the podcast. Hi, David. Hey, Tony. Well, we had the most excellent honor of being in David's uh, incredibly cool artist studio for a portion of this podcast. Unfortunately, this was our first attempt at recording a remote podcast, and yours truly made a technical error that basically ruined the first ten minutes of the interview. So with David's collusion, we're going to do portions of the interview again. Is that all right, David? Absolutely. Now, I remember from your studio, the the main thing I remember is you have a human skeleton.
2: Yes, I do. Yeah, I, I actually, when I first moved to New York City, I bought that on Canal Street from a vendor, believe it or not.
0: And it's real
2: it is yes they've they've since embargoed that, so they're 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 much harder to get, I think they're restricted to medical student schools, but it's it is excellent reference
0: <clears throat> and uh your your shelves are are full of books you've done covers for, and uh what was what were the cool things on the top shelves that we were discussing before?
2: Well, I have a whole bunch of action figures. I've kind of collected the action figures that I loved as a kid, uh like there's a there's a Marx uh toy that's a, a knight in armor and uh Captain Action. I have some of those original uh figures. And also on my shelf one of the one of my treasures is I have one of the original miniatures from uh the film The Black Hole that I worked on. Uh, it's a little miniature of the Palomino spaceship, and uh, there aren't many miniatures around like that in private hands, so I always show that off.
0: Uh, David Mattingly is, I think you could say, a legendary cover artist for Bain Books and many others. David is probably best known for his cover art on covers for most of the Honor Harrington series books, although he's done many Bain Books. He defined the look of Honor and created the imaginative starting point for many a reader to dive into David Weber's novels or any novels. David has done dozens of Bang covers starting in the 1980s and extending through to his latest cover for the Worlds of Honor Anthology Beginnings that will be out next month. Just to concentrate on recent work, he's the cover artist for the Leaden Universe series by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Books such as the recently released Necessity's Child is his. He did the cover for Sarah Hoyt's Darkship Renegades and A Few Good Men. And, of course, David is the cover artist for David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Rising Thunder, House of Steel, The Honorverse Companion, and previously mentioned Honorverse Anthology Beginnings, and that's just in the last six months. Uh, in, (laughs) In addition to being cover artist extraordinaire, David is also a master of modern matte painting for film and television. In fact, he literally wrote the book on the subject, and it's called The Digital Matte Painting Handbook. So before we get to discussion of covers, David, what does the name Peter Ellenshaw mean to you?
2: Well, Peter Ellenshaw was arguably the greatest uh, mad artist of the pre-digital era. Uh, there's another mad artist, Albert Whitlock, who's often mentioned alongside him. But I had an opportunity to work with Peter, and he was partially responsible for my training. His son, Harrison Ellenshaw, was my mentor. And, uh, his, his work is featured in Mary Poppins, uh, Treasure Island, The Sword and the Rose, Darby O'Gill and The Little People, which many people mention is one of the greatest special effects films before the, the digital era. When you look at what he accomplished in that show with matte paintings, it, it really is mind-blowing. So he, uh, he was a very important figure in, in my life. He since, uh, passed away. But if you've never looked at his paintings, he also had a, gr- a career as a gallery painter. You should Google him. He's a really amazing uh, landscape painter.
0: Now, his son, uh, you worked with him on uh, when you worked at uh, the Disney Studios when you were first starting out. Could you tell us a little bit about your uh, your beginnings?
2: Sure. I, uh, when I when I was in art school, and when Star Wars came out, I had been following matte painting ever since I was a child. I I, uh, I actually felt very special because I knew that there were these guys who made these paintings that looked like reality that were inserted into films. And when Star Wars came out, there was an article on on uh, Harrison. His name at the time was Peter, which is the same name as his father. Uh, and I called Disney Studios out of the blue and said, you know, Peter, I've always wanted to be a mad artist. Uh, could I come in and uh, have an interview? And I was utterly shocked. They put me straight through to him on the line. And three days later, I had a job offer from them and I dropped out of school to take it. So uh, my parents were less than thrilled, but it was it was a, an amazing opportunity to 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 work with these masters. And Harrison, you know, is truly one of the one of the greatest effects, uh, visual effects directors who's ever worked in the industry.
0: You worked with him on Black Hole, right? Is that the?
2: I did, yep, on, on Black Hole and also on Tron when he was uh, moving into in more of a production part of the, uh, of the show. I should mention it's the original Tron, not Tron legacy. <laughs> yeah.
0: Can you explain what a matte painting is and, uh, and what it is nowadays and what it was, or is it the same? process?
2: Sure. Well, you know, it's not at all the same process, although it still goes by the same name. And the name matte painting came from the fact that you would do a painting on a on a sheet of glass, and then you would shoot the background through that sheet of glass. And wherever you'd added the painting, it would mat out the background. And since the camera, at least in those days, only had one eye, it was impossible to tell That the sheet of glass was actually much closer to you than the, than the background. I think the, the cliche example is you've got a castle and you only build the ground floor and then you'd have an artist paint all the rest of it. But matte paintings were used invisibly uh, in films over the years, including Gone with the Wind where many, almost all the time you see Terra in Gone with the Wind, it's at least partially a matte painting. And, uh, in Citizen Kane, there's a whole bunch of, of matte paintings. In, in Spartacus, there's a great matte painting by uh, Peter Ellenshaw. But people weren't really aware of it until, I think Star Wars, the first Star Wars actually, uh, made people much more aware, uh, that the art existed. Now it's not restricted to, you know, just painting on glass, which is how I started out. Now, uh, in, in the past, if a director didn't want, you know, if he wanted a beautiful sky with some beautiful clouds in the background, he'd actually wait until the, the sky got those clouds there. Uh, now no director will ever wait for a, for the perfect sky. They'll generally replace all the skies on a, on a big western or on a, a big, uh, show with where they want a beautiful exterior on things. So, you know now, matte paintings are used to to touch up things, to take out bi- microphone booms, to extend environments on shows. So it's it's a much more widely used uh, special effects technique than when I got into it.
0: What have you What have you recently done in uh, matte painting? Well,
2: recently I did a uh, a uh, Legos commercial, and in the commercial, the world is actually built out of Legos, and they. They built uh, the the section of the of I think it's San Francisco when uh, you're close in on San Francisco, but then when they pulled out, they decided they needed a painting instead of actually trying to build it build it out of 3D geometry. So I did that, and I've also I, I do a lot of backgrounds for commercials. I did a Sears commercial recently where some women were under the sea. Uh, so I, in, in New York city, there isn't a lot of fil- feature film work. So I'll, I'll generally do work for production houses at this point.
0: Well, let's, uh, let's move on to covers, which is, um, which is your Bane specialty. Now I laid out a table full of Mattingly covers back at my office or actually here now that I'm in my office <laughs> on this very table and looked at them mixed up. And then I looked at them in sort of progression and, uh, you know, the David Weber covers have this interesting progression. First, you you, do a, you did a sort of tarot card cover for the, um, I believe it was not the original uh, on Basilisk Station, but uh, a reprint of it. But then you, you did more covers that were illustrating a scene, and, and now the later honored covers seem to have started moving toward like a conceptual cover with lots of symbolic elements from the, from the books uh, all on there. Um, and your sort of trademark big honor head is is in the center. Is this a reflection of the changing contents of the book, or are you as an artist or what they need to do as books? Um, can you sort of reflect on how these covers have developed
2: well you know i'm I'm ashamed to say i don't I never had a grand scheme uh, for the overall look of this series, and uh, I tend to like to do real space scenes i when I say real space not montaged. Uh, elements with a bunch of different elements uh, from the book. And so if I can find a scene from the book that I think is really interesting, I'll, I'll a lot of times do that. I just find it more interesting and more in line with my own tastes. But in the Honor books, one of the challenges of the books is that as Honor has moved up in rank, she's doing less fighting. So there's less obvious scenes uh, of, of Honor in uh in a you know in an environment where where you could really make a a uh, uh, an exciting cover, so some of them have gotten a little more conceptual primarily because I'm trying to pull in other elements from the book uh to to you know to to show you sort of the general excitement of the universe rather than a specific scene you know all of the honor books have plenty of action in them, but in these later ones she's not necessarily involved directly in the action. So, and actually I, I entered this series with Honor Among Enemies. That was my, my first cover. And I got the book because Jim Bain had been having a hard time with the covers. He, and I guess David Weber had not been satisfied with them. Uh, even though he had assigned some really outstanding illustrators to them. And I submitted a cover for another book, actually for an Elizabeth Moon book, and Jim said, well, we're going to do this other sketch for the Elizabeth Moon book, but the next honor book we have, we're going to do this sketch. And that was actually the Honor Among Enemies uh, sketch. So that was that was sort of the starting point of it, and then I had the opportunity to go back and do the other covers and to to sort of unify the look of the of the series. So, what about
0: that Honor Harrington look? She's she's changed in the books and in your art. Um, you use uh, you use artists models, do you not, for uh, for creating uh, for the beginnings of a of a cover art painting?
2: Yes, I, yes, I do. And I, you know, I would have loved to have found a perfect Honor Harrington model, but I've never really run across a woman who was, you know, just absolutely dead on my vision of, uh, uh, of what honor should look like. So I've always found myself having to, you know, uh, considerably manipulate and change the look of the model to uh have her look like my vision of honor harrington it, it it's one of the problems of being a science fiction illustrator is i 'll occasionally ask friends and you know acquaintances uh to pose for me, and a lot of times they're very excited about it and then when the book comes out it 's like this doesn't look anything like me, so people you know people can be very disappointed that i've changed them uh so much in the in the course of of doing the cover but you know, I definitely have a vision of what honor should look like, and it's it, it's not really someone I've ever been able to uh, to come across and use as a, as a photographic model so far.
0: Tell us about Orson on David Mattingly covers.
2: Yes, well, you know, ever since this cat Orson died, and she died in uh, 1984, I've been putting her on my covers in, in uh, hidden ways. And there have actually been clients... Uh, not Bain books, but uh, other clients with more conservative tastes who have specifically asked me not to put the cat in. And then just to, just to sort of keep the theme going, I'll put her in in a very secret way. But the, the story with Orson is I've, I've now been married to my current wife for 25 years. But when I was getting divorced from my first wife, this fantastic cat Orson was just with me all the time. She, she just was in my studio. She never left my side. And when she died, I was just heartbroken, and I was trying to figure out a way to sort of keep her memory alive. And so I started putting her on the covers, and people started noticing me noticing them and asking about them. So I just decided to keep it going. So lo, these many years later, uh, I guess almost 30 years, uh, she's, she's still alive and kicking on the covers.
0: <laughs> so if we look, we should be able to find Orson somewhere. On all Mattingly
2: covers? Yes, on all Mattingly covers. There's, there's actually a pretty obvious one. If you, if you look at Honor Among Enemies, she's in the background uh, on one of the view screens. And actually, one of my favorites, if people are actually looking for them, is – let me actually find it. It's uh, a wonderful book by Michael Williamson uh, called Freehold. And let me see if I can actually see it on the cover. It wasn't cropped out. That's the largest Orson head I've ever done. I, I sort of stretched her out uh, on the ground. It's, it's a it's a blonde warrior running with some fighters shooting at her. And I basically stretched out the head so big that you, it doesn't really read as a cat head. But it's there and, and actually quite large and obvious. So, yeah, I mean, it, it sort of depends on... Uh, if I could you know i don 't want to make it super obvious, so I try and sneak them in in a clever way that if people are really interested, they could search around and find them.
0: Well, we had a really great uh rest of the interview, and Sharon Lee and Steve Miller were there, and we all and they were cat people, and you are still a cat person. I believe you have uh, at least a couple in that studio, and they were really cute
1: yep
2: we have we have two right now.
0: So uh, let's uh, from here. I will go to the rest of the interview that that we recorded in your okay. studio,
3: and then they see it, and it ultimately doesn't look exactly like them, and uh, that can be very disappointing uh, to models. But I use the the models as reference, not as you know. I, I, I like to think of myself as not yeah. completely photo dependent.
0: Sure, as a as a tool. Well, what what's the evolution of? So you get a photo of a model that that you're going to work on, um, what do you do with it after that?
3: Well, I, I, I never shoot models until I have the sketches approved. I'll generally submit uh, three or four ideas for a book, and then the publisher will pick one of those ideas, and then only after I have that idea in hand, I'll sh- uh, photograph a model. And I- I've... Uh, now I shoot the models here in my studio. I've become a, a good enough photographer. In the past, I used to actually work with a professional photographer to get the the model shoots. But I think it's a little bit easier on the models. They can come out here be a little bit more relaxed, and uh, uh, then I can work with them more intensively to get exactly what I want. And sometimes the poses are very difficult. It, if someone is a professional model and they're used to sort of lounging around in clothing, to be asked to... Do some of the dramatic poses that uh, that I have them doing, you know. Not every not every model likes that.
0: <laughs> uh huh. Well, what about the? Um, I, I read somewhere that you had to change out uh, the, the photo model that you were using for Honor um, because. Your original got older. Is that the case, or did you, have you used many people? For I her? have, and
3: my my original model actually moved moved to California, and uh, the the Bing budget didn't allow me to fly her in uh, <laughs> to do it. Actually, on on Basilisk station, there's two existent existent versions of that. Jim didn't like the honor face on that cover, and so when they were reprinting it, when they were putting out one of the newer David Weber. Books. He asked me to do it again, and I actually like that face a whole lot better.
0: Yeah, the, I think my favorite, uh, my favorite of your Weber covers is the one where Honor is standing in that that column of light. Um, it's a beautiful, evocative cover. I'm
3: yeah, no, that's Honor Among Enemies, yes, and that's yes. I, I think that's my favorite of all the covers I've done. Although I very much like the the newest one, the uh, Rising Thunder. I think that that. You know, it's a really big scene. There's a huge city behind her. So those are probably my two favorites of the series.
0: So let's talk about your covers for the Leaden books written by Sharon and Steve. Uh, first of all, you you get assigned the work by my boss, Bain publisher Tony Weisskopf. And Tony is also de facto art director here at Bain as well. Uh, art doesn't go on a cover until Tony approves it. So you get the assignment for, say, Necessities Child. How do you start? Where do you go? How do how does how does it take you?
3: I read the book all the way through. One of the joys of being a science fiction illustrator is you don't generally get a cover spec in, uh, in other areas of publishing. They don't even allow the illustrator to read the book or they don't want them to. So I'll read them and then try and find scenes that I think would represent the book. My goal isn't necessarily to exactly illustrate a specific scene in the book but capture the feel. And look of it. Sometimes authors will write scenes that are just so perfect that I'll do an exact scene, but the Liaden books are, are they're very character-driven. They Stephen uh, Sharon don't feel compelled to write, you know, huge action scenes every moment. So you're you're looking to find something that represents the deeper characters in the book. At least that's my approach to them.
0: So uh, other covers you've done, for instance, you did all the. Uh... The famous Animorph series covers. Um, they told you what they wanted, and you had to figure out a way to to do something for them. Is that
3: they did? I, I very rarely received a manuscript on those books, and they, you know, it was it was a general spec. They'd say, uh, so uh, and so is morphing into a hippopotamus or something like that. So then I had the freedom to figure out how to how to do it, but I didn't get an opportunity to read the books.
0: Well, those were very cool covers as well. I, Within the, it, it's sort of like writing a sonnet, I suppose, you have a very narrow uh, thing you have to do, and you, you came up with some great ideas on those as well.
3: Well, thank you.
0: Here's a question for Sharon and Steve. Um, how does it feel from your end of things? When you first see a cover, how do you feel, uh, how do you think about it? Um, I know in my own role as a science fiction writer that I'm often a little bewildered at first when I see one of my covers. Uh <laughs> Does your relationship with the cover change over time? Do you get to like it better or worse? I mean, this is your baby the artist has sort of drawn all over.
2: We've been we've been very lucky, if
0: I may say so, but we, we got, starting from the beginning uh, of our
2: careers, uh, Steve Hickman called us up to find out what the heck the name of one of the pieces, one of the bars were in the story. And because they,
3: s- they sent him half a manuscript. And
0: uh-huh. uh, with, with David, he has... Generally, uh, ask something, a question or two, about the the work in process, and that's that's been very good. As for
3: what we've got, uh, we have framed prints on the wall of all of them, and I expect to continue that. So we're very happy with oh,
0: That's a testament.
3: One one of the. Um covers that David did for us very kindly was Dragonship, which um, we weren't finished writing Dragonship at the time we got the cover, so he set up the scene, the evocative scene, with um, Theo in the junkyard. The junkyard in the background and Theo talking to Bishimo. Well, you know, that that is an example. When I read that scene, it was just obvious that that had to that had to be it. Where where, where it lands and rescues her. So yeah, I was literally reading the manuscript. It was like I don't really need to read anymore. I, I still did other sketches, but I knew that was going to be the scene.
0: So you literally wrote to the cover. Yes. Wow. That's that's a testament for for sure. So David, can you reflect for a bit on your relationship with art directors and publishers over the years, and particularly Jim Bain. Um, how did you start doing Bain Covers? Well, you said uh, how you did the Honor Covers, and what was Jim Bain like to work with? Um, and tell us something about Orson.
3: <laughs> well, uh, I, I had moved to New York, and I was working for Del Rey and for Don Wolheim at uh, Daw Books. And I'd never worked for Jim, but I loved the covers and sort of the energy in his, uh, in his covers. And that was, that was back when he was the tour editor. And uh, so I went in and showed him samples and ended up probably talking to him for two hours, which it ended up being a bit of a pattern uh, with Jim. He he loved to talk on many wide-ranging topics. And then when Bain Books was announced, I did uh, the cover for Fire Time, and Jim used that as the piece of art that announced the, the new line. So working with Jim was unique. A lot of Publishers obviously want a good cover for their book, but Jim was genuinely interested in art, and he would a lot of times call me up and we'd have discussions of his new idea on art. Some of which was a little crazy, uh, but he, you know, he loved to sort of run run with something to discuss uh, things. And Jim, even though he didn't have a lot of formal art training, was an amazing art director in that he. Actually, on my wall, uh, right, right behind you, is a cover for an Aaron Alston book. That's one of my favorites, and it's called Doc She. Mm-hmm. And I had envisioned it as just a Doc Savage pastiche. And I delivered it with the character with a white shirt on a torn white shirt like Doc Savage had. And when I brought it in, Jim said, you got to make the shirt red. And, you know, it really made the cover. It also sort of took the curse off of it as, as a direct uh, Doc Savage pastiche. But it was a great example, and Jim was also very flexible. If he, you know, if he suggested something, and I, I would always go home and, and uh, do it. Uh, if it didn't work out, he was not so stuck on his ideas that he couldn't say, "Well, that doesn't work. Let's go back to the old, uh, the old way." So he was the the longest person I worked with. It was incredibly heartbreaking uh, when he died, and I felt very grateful that he had brought in Tony, who you know had already become such a huge part of the company. I think a lot of times when these towering publishers like Judy Lindell Ray died or, or Don Wolheim died, the book company loses its identity. And because Tony was there, Bain's never lost its, its identity. In this world of sort of homogeneous books, you can tell a Bain book and you, you know what you're going to get.
0: And you have a lot to do with defining that uh, that brand look that that Bain has as well, having done hundreds and hundreds <laughs> and hundreds right. of covers, so You've lost count. All right. So uh, finally, I want to get in a word on influences from you. You and I happen to share a favorite artist, and that is Jackson Pollock. Uh, Pollock is the artist who did all those action paintings and the drip painting techniques back in the 40s and 50s, and people have different opinions about that. Uh, when I lived in New York, I used to go to the MoMA and just stare at his work to get ideas for my writing. Obviously, you can't do a Pollock-type painting uh, as the cover for a rip-roaring adventure novel. Um, how do you think an artist you like works his or her way into your work, or do, or do you just appreciate them? Uh, do they influence you in, in, in your work?
3: Well, Pollock's work doesn't directly influence me because I'm a realist painter, and, you know, I have a lot of realist painters' friends who really dislike modern art, and I, I have just never fallen into that category, even though Pollock's work doesn't directly influence my work. It, even as a child, I just recognized such enormous freedom in his work, and that there was something very, very deep in standing in front of Autumn Rhythms at uh, the Met, so that it just completely consumes your field of vision, and you can just literally fall into the thing. So, uh, you know, I, I, in my bio I mentioned three artists. Uh, the other guy's uh, Jim Steranko, who was a comic artist, who was very influential to, to me as a kid, and I still find his work astounding. And then there was a space artist named Robert McCall, whose work still just blows me away. He, he died a few years ago. But he, you know, he was one of the primary influences on me, just in terms of his vision of the future, and he had, you know, he had such a positive view of what the future would be like. It's too bad it, it hasn't turned out to be like mm-hmm. uh, a Robert McCall uh, future.
0: So it's more that the, that their work gets into the feel of your work rather than that you're ripping off techniques or anything like that. Well, I'm
3: guilty of ripping off a lot of stuff from Robert McCall, but uh-huh. it, I'm not guilty of uh, ripping off uh, uh, Pollock primarily because there isn't much of a crossover. But, you know, I think every artist is trying to produce something beautiful, uh, something that communicates to his audience. And, it, you know, on on every level, Pollock's work speaks to me in, in that way. So, uh, yeah, you know, I'm lucky enough to live here in New York where we have access to some of this great uh, artwork.
0: Well, one, of the, one of the things that struck me when um, I was looking up David Mattingly things on, on the internet is how many of your students write beautiful testimonies to what a great teacher you are. Um, do you still teach, and um, what do you teach?
3: I teach matte painting at both School of Visual Arts and Pratt Institute and uh, I I started teaching about 10 years ago now and it's turned out to be one of the most rewarding things I do I just I love you know teaching these kids everything I know about this particular craft it also I think keeps me young I had many years of just sitting in my studio slaving away on covers and this gives me an opportunity to get out and you know, get some of that young blood uh, in, into into my influences. So, yeah, I, I do teach, and uh, anyone who's going to art school in New York, take my class, digital math painting. <laughs> well, your,
0: your students seem to love you. Uh, we've been talking with David Mattingly, Bain cover artist extraordinaire and the man who defined the Honor Harrington in the Aden Universe covers, among many, many other things. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today, David.
3: Thank you very much, Tony.
0: Bain eBooks, our eBook retail site at BaneEbooks.com, not only has the eBook versions of great books by Bain authors and our exclusive and amazing electronic advanced reading copies of books from your favorite authors, also at Bain eBooks is a wide selection of eBook-only offerings. These include eBooks by Jerry Pornell, Charles Sheffield, Walter John Williams, Frank Herbert, and many, many others. Among these books is a unique collection we want to highlight today. This is the Ron Miller Science Fiction Classics Collection. We are pleased to have Ron Miller on the podcast. Hi, Ron. Hi there. Ron Miller is an illustrator and author living in South Boston, Virginia. Before becoming a freelance illustrator in 1977, Miller was art director for the National Air and Space Museum's Albert Einstein Planetarium. Prior to this, he was a commercial advertising illustrator. His work has appeared on scores of book jackets, book interiors, and in magazines such as National Geographic, Reader's Digest, Smithsonian, Air and Space, Sky and Telescope, and the list goes on and on. Among many other accomplishments, Ron is a world authority on Jules Verne. He translated and illustrated a new definitive edition of Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Journey to the Center of the Earth, as well as a major companion atlas to Verne's work, which is called Extraordinary Voyages. He's also an authority on the early history of spaceflight. His Dream Machines is a comprehensive history of manned spacecraft, and it was nominated for the IAF Manuscript Award and won the Booklist Editor's Choice Award as well. So, Ron... Can you tell us a little bit about this tremendous collection you've created here in ebook form and how that came about?:
4: Well, it was really a spin off of that book you just mentioned, the Dream Machines. machines. Uh, I've always loved rockets. I mean since I was as little as I ever was, I you know I'd, I'd hurry home from elementary school so get, I get in time to see uh, space patrol on TV. The earliest drawings I remember drawing were drawings you know, of rockets. I, I, I like rockets and space flight my whole life. So I, <clears throat> and like anything else that I'm interested in, I like the history of it. So uh, about maybe about ten years ago, I really started digging into what the whole idea of space flight and, and spacecraft came from. And one of the spin-offs of that, of course, was, was that book, but was a, a huge collection of. Um, some pretty obscure old books about space flight and, and to travel to the you know, different planets of the solar system. Some of these books have been out of print for you know upwards of you know, a couple hundred years in some cases. And when POD printing became available, I thought, hey, I could take advantage of this to bring these books back. Um, you know, cause a lot of them you know, are, are difficult to find. Some are be you know, possibly expensive. You know, to, to locate if you if you wanted just to read a copy. So this would give a chance to share these books with people with um, who uh, I want to read them, but I might not be willing to chase them down at some obscure library or spend a couple of hundred dollars for the privilege of reading it. And um, no. so that's that's where, that's that's where all this came from.
0: Most people think science fiction just stretches <clears throat> back, uh, you know, perhaps to the. Uh... Maybe to Frankenstein, but really maybe to the uh, turn of the 19th uh, century into the 20th century. But these books are science fiction, and they're older than that, some of them, a lot of them.
4: Yeah, I think the earliest one in the collection is um, sometime in the uh, mid-18th century. Um, I, I think the earliest one, well, actually the earliest one I have is, is, is Lucian's Voyage to the Moon, which was published, was, was written in uh, year 160, <clears throat> uh, so yeah, you know, they, they go back a long ways.
0: Can you give us a few titles that uh, sort of highlights of this collection? Yeah,
4: you know, unfortunately, I, I made sure I had them in front of me here, so I wouldn't forget some. Um, so some of some books, you know, some are kind of familiar, but some of the odder ones, for example, is this Gulliver's Jo by Albert Pierce. It was written in 1851. And it's the first ever description of a rocket-powered spacecraft in history, which is. Uh, I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> it's an American book too. Yay! A oh. um, Voyage to Cacklagalinia. This is from 1727, and it's about a trip to a planet, headed entirely by intelligent chickens. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite books. Uh, one I always point out to people whenever I get a chance to is The Moonmaker, and um, this describes a trip in a, uh, a nuclear-powered spacecraft. It's run on uranium and flies on a beam of alpha particles from the disintegration of the uranium. And its mission is to intercept an asteroid on a collision course with the Earth. And they meet up with it. They set up an atomic reaction on one side of the asteroid, nudging it just enough so that months later, when it gets to, you know, passes the Earth, it misses us. And this is written in 1915.
0: 1915, that is amazingly prescient of some things we're worried about today.
4: (laughs) I I know. In fact, I think it's the first time I've ever found of uh, of that that concern about an asteroid impact. And it's exactly the way they plan to nudge one out of the way now. So it's it's an incredibly readable story. Uh, It reads like it was written just a few years ago.
0: Now some of these are translations as well, and you've done the translating. Is that the case?
4: Well, only on only on the Vern uh, some of the Verne things. Um, it, it's, for me, it's an incredibly laborious process, I'm not all that fluent in French. So, um, so only 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 those Vern titles.
0: You are also the author of many books. Can you tell us about your new book on Galileo?
4: Oh, yeah, I like this one. <laughs> the last, gosh, maybe. At least ten or fifteen years, I've been doing a lot of uh, science books for young adults, which I really, really enjoy doing because um, I don't have to be as elaborately thorough as I would be for writing uh, an adult book. But at the same token, I don't have to write, you know, down to them to, to like, like I'm writing to children. So it's, it's a lot of fun. So I, uh, I proposed a book on the. Um, whole controversy that erupted, you know, at the time of Galileo and, and Copernicus and the Catholic Church and how all that came about and what all the consequences of it were, was, were, and um, there was a lot of surprises in it uh, for me that, uh, you know, I, I, uh, a lot of assumptions people make about all that, uh, at the time, you know, what occurred that aren't true. Uh, and I got a chance also to make these people come alive, give, give Galileo and Newton and Copernicus and Tycho and all these people some, some personality and bring them alive to the kids who are reading this thing. So it was a lot of fun to do, and I'm really proud of this one. It, it, just, it just came out a couple of weeks ago.
0: What's the title of it?
4: Uh, Re- Recentering the Universe.
0: Cool. Who is the publisher of this? Uh,
4: Lerner, Learner Publishing Company.
0: Excellent. We'll look for that. Uh, so, if we want to dive into the Ron Miller Classics Collection at Bain eBooks, where do you think? Where would you recommend a reader might begin?
4: Oh gosh, I, uh, there's there's like a hundred of them. <laughs> and, uh, um,
0: Could you uh, read them I, thematically, or?
4: Well, there there are themes. Um, there's there's a collection of really early children's books, or books. I say children, it's a young young persons' books. There's of course the Jules Verne books. Um, the one I just mentioned, uh, the Moonmakers, is one of my favorites. Uh, I always recommend that for people. So, it kind, of, it kind of depends a little bit on what your, um, you know, what your own personal slants are uh, might might be.
0: Well, if you get one of these ebooks you can see a list uh, of the others and the divisions that Ron has made of them into themes and and such uh, at the beginning of it as well as uh, you'll get an essay that Ron has written about the making of this collection as well. The Ron Miller Science Fiction Collection. It's available at Bain eBooks, bainebooks.com and everywhere Bain eBooks are sold as well. Check out these wonderful gems that Ron has rescued from the sands of time. Thanks for being with <laughs> us, Ron.
4: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles, including many Bane titles, when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war... Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has defeated one long-standing enemy, the Havenites, and reached a truth with another menace, the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling, and on the edges of its empire, rebellion is brewing. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Henke, Countess Goldpeak, who is in command of Royal Manticoran naval forces in the Talbot Quadrant, sympathizes with the rebels but she is also wary of a conspiracy by the shadowy Mason alignment to set Manticore and the Sollies at one another's throats. Goldpeak wants the help she can provide rebels against the Sullies to come at a time and place of her choosing and not that of her enemies. That place is the Saltash system in the Talbot Quadrant. Saltash is nominally a free system, but for generations has been under the thumb of the Sullies' Office of Frontier Security. That's about to change... The governor of the system has impounded Manticoran merchant ships in a deliberate act of provocation and greed. What he has provoked, however, is the ire of the Royal Manticoran Navy, as he is about to discover. Here is Part 14 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom.
5: Chapter 11 We're getting back good data on the forward platform, Skipper, Abigail Hearn said and Naomi Kaplan turned her command chair to face the tack section and cocked her head in response to Abigail's tone. I'm seeing three murchies in parking orbit with the platform, ma'am, Abigail said, replying to the unspoken question. They're not squawking transponders, but we're close enough for good visuals, and at least two of them look Manticoran built to me. That's not the interesting thing, though. No? Kaplan smiled thinly. That sounds interesting enough to be going on with to me, Abigail. Oh, I agree, ma'am. But what I thought was really interesting were the four battlecruisers lying doggo in the inner system. A frisson of tension ran across Tristram's bridge. You're right. That is interesting, Kaplan conceded after a moment. I'm assuming Commodore Zavala has that information as well? Yes, ma'am. It's on the distributed feed. Good. Kaplan's hexapuma smile was even thinner and much colder than before. I think this little spider may have underestimated the fly. It's confirmed, sir, Lieutenant Commander Gabrowski said a half hour later. All four of the battle cruisers are indefatigables, older units from their emission signatures, and the recon platforms say they have hot nodes Our platforms have gotten a good look at the entire inner system now, though, and aside from the trio of tin cans on the far side of Cinnamon's Moon, that seems to be all they've got. And still not a peep out of any of them, correct, Abijat? Jacob Zavala asked Lieutenant Abijat Wilson, his calm officer. Not one, sir, Wilson confirmed. And they have to know we're here, and that we sure as hell aren't merchies. Lieutenant Commander Auerbach added. So I have to wonder why they haven't said a word to us. Well, at least it makes a pleasant change from the usual Solarian bluster, don't you think? Jacob Zavala's tone was whimsical. His expression was not. What it suggests to me is that there's a reason we are not hearing the usual Solarian bluster, sir, Auerbach replied. The chief of staff liked and respected Zavala, and they usually got along well, but George Auerbach had never been noted for his spontaneity or sparkling sense of humor. "'Fair's fair, George,' Zavala pointed out in a more serious tone. "'We haven't talked to them yet, either.' Zavala's truncated squadron had been inbound for eighty-five minutes, His destroyer's velocity relative to the system primary was up to 29,400 kps, and they were barely three minutes from their turnover for a zero-zero intercept with the Planet of Cinnamon still over 88 million kilometers ahead of them. They were also well inside the 12-light-hour limit where they were supposed to have announced their identities. There was a little leeway in that requirement, especially for ships emerging from hyper, as most ships did well inside it, but they were still supposed to get around to it in a timely fashion, and he supposed it could be argued that he hadn't. Pity about that. I know we haven't talked to them yet, sir, Commander Rochelle Goulard said from the calm display, which tied Zavala and his staff into HMS K's command deck. On the other hand, I can't see them trying to hide from our senses if they didn't have something nasty in mind. I can think of at least a couple of legitimate, from their perspective at least, reasons for hiding, Roxy, Zavala told his flag captain. For one thing, they might have come up with a frontier fleet officer bright enough to seal his own shoes. They may not have details on Spindle here in Saltash yet, but it's been five tea months since Bing got himself blown away in New Tuscany, There's been time enough for them to have heard all about that encounter, and if they've paid some attention to the reports of our weapons range from New Tuscany, they may just want to make sure we're inside their range basket before they make their presence known, especially if they buy into the notion that we're the ones who are actually picking this fight, which is exactly how the Sollies spun New Tuscany. Agreed, sir. Lieutenant Commander Gabrowski said. But there are some other possibilities here, too. Zavala looked at her, and the ops officer shrugged. We've wondered all along why a system governor might do something as daft as seizing Montecoran merchantmen. What if they were intended from the beginning as bait, and these battlecruisers are the trap? I think that's an entirely plausible scenario, Zavala acknowledged. Mind you, I'm not going to rush in assuming it's what's happening, but I'm damned well not going to assume it isn't, either. That's a relief, sir, Gabrowski said earnestly, given how gullible and easily taken in you usually are, I mean. Unlike Auerbach, Gabrowski did have a sense of humor, and Zavala grinned at her, then rubbed the tip of his nose thoughtfully. The Sollies had undoubtedly figured out who and what his command was by now, or they'd at least figured out his ships had to be Manticorin, at any rate, even if they didn't realize something as large as a Roland-class destroyer wasn't a light cruiser. On the other hand, it was unlikely anyone in Saltash had detected the highly stealthy Ghost Rider recon platforms fanning out in front of his squadron. Which probably meant that, so far at least, he knew about their battlecruisers, and they didn't know that he knew about them. The problem was what he did with that information. I know what I'd like to do with it, he thought grimly. Unfortunately, Admiral Goldpeak made it abundantly clear I'm not supposed to do that if I have a choice. So I guess just blowing them out of space without warning would be just a bit of an overreaction. Of course, if they decide to be unreasonable about this... "'I suppose we'd better go ahead and talk to them, Abijad,' he said. "'Yes, sir,' Lieutenant Wilson replied, trying hard not to crack a smile at the resignation in his superior's tone. "'I'll see about getting hold of someone.' System Governor Damian Duenius's calm buzzed discreetly, and he tapped the virtual key to accept the connection. I have a calm request from our Captain Jacob Zavala, Governor. Maxens Kodu, his executive assistant, announced from the holographic display when it materialized above his desk. Really? Duenas tipped back his chair and frowned. Took the bastard long enough to get on the comm, didn't it? Well, he's coming up on Dobroskaya's projected turnover point, Lieutenant Governor Tia Lekainen observed from where she stood gazing out over the lights and air car traffic of the city of Karnuish. She turned to face the governor. "'If his intention was to let us sweat, we've had time to start doing that nicely now, so he probably figures it's time he got around to talking to us.' She made a face. "'From what we've seen out of him so far,' I don't imagine he intends to be particularly accommodating about it either. I almost hope you're right, Cicely, Duenius half-growled. In fact, I'm looking forward to it. I don't imagine he's going to be very happy when he finds out we're a lot readier for his visit than he expected us to be. I just want to get him farther in system before he figures out what we've got waiting for him. "'Tila Kanan nodded, but Duenas felt another stir of resentment "'as she turned back to the window. "'He couldn't fault her willingness to dig in and make the plan work, "'despite her lack of enthusiasm, "'but she'd been the lieutenant governor here in Saltash for over ten T years, "'and she seemed far less engaged than Duenas would have preferred. "'Or as engaged as someone with a proper sense of ambition "'should have been, for that matter. "'Not too surprising, really,' he supposed.' The lieutenant governorship of a single backwater star system like Saltash wasn't exactly the sort of plum assignment for which a really up-and-coming OFS bureaucrat would choose to compete. Even a full governorship out here was little more than a stepping stone to something better and more profitable, but Teela Kanin seemed prepared to settle for her current slot. Damian Duenas, on the other hand, was not and the system governor who finally managed to bloody the manty's nose would be bound for bigger and better things. Hell, if this works out half as well as I expect it to, I'll even take her along with me, he thought. Then he looked back at Kodu. Go ahead and put him through to my desk, Maxence, he said. Of course, sir. Kodu nodded courteously and disappeared from the hologram. A moment later, he was replaced by the image of a small, dark-featured officer with incongruously blue eyes in an obviously military skin suit. Captain Zavala, I presume, Duenia said with a cool smile, then sat back to wait the ten-plus minutes while the light-speed message zipped to the distant Manticoran ship and his response came back again. Indeed, the man in his display said, barely nine seconds later. And you, I assume, are System Governor Duenas? Duenas twitched. He couldn't help that any more than he could help the involuntary widening of his eyes. He turned his head, shooting a sharp glance at Tiela Canan. The Lieutenant Governor was outside his own comms pickup's field of view, but she'd turned quickly back from the window, her expression as astonished as Duenas felt. Under the circumstances, Zavala went on from the display. I thought it would probably be a good idea to minimize transmission lags for this conversation, Governor. I am speaking to Governor Duenas, I trust? Yes. I mean, I'm System Governor Duenas. What can I do for you, Captain? Duenas's voice sounded less firm than he might have wished almost hesitant, in the face of the Manticoran's demonstration that they did have the faster-than-light communications capability the human race had sought for the last thousand T-years or so, and he willed his face back into impassivity. "'I'm here to inquire into certain reports we've received, Governor,' the Manticoran officer responded with that same disconcerting quickness, but then he paused. What sort of reports would that be, captain? Duenas asked, then swore silently at himself, for allowing Zavala to suck him into filling the silence the other man had deliberately left. According to information which has reached Admiral Goldpeak, Zavala replied courteously enough, the Montecoran merchant vessel Caroline has been unlawfully detained here in Saltash. "'He showed his teeth in a brief flash of white. "'I'm certain it's all simply a misunderstanding, "'but Lady Goldpeak sent me out to get to the bottom of things.' "'I see.' "'Dwenius folded his hands together on his desk blotter "'and regarded Zavala's holographic image levelly. "'He was starting to come back on balance mentally, "'although the confirmation of the Manti's FTL communications ability "'had been unpleasant,' "'Mostly because it suggested some of the other wild rumors "'might have some substance in effect as well. "'Well, Captain Zavala,' he said after a moment, "'I'm afraid it's not all simply a misunderstanding. "'I have indeed denied Caroline departure clearance "'and placed her crew in medical quarantine. "'I'm afraid that's also true of the Manticorin vessel Argonaut, in fact.' "'I see.' Zavala had an excellent poker face, but it was obvious from the glitter in his eyes that he'd echoed the governor's own words with malice aforethought. May I ask the nature of this medical emergency? And how many other vessels which might have been exposed to it have also been detained? I'm scarcely well-versed in medical matters, Captain. I had no choice but to rely on my own medical personnel to evaluate the risk, and then act it accordingly. Duenya smiled with immense affability. As for other vessels having been detained, I'm afraid there's no indication anyone else has been exposed to the apparent contagion's source. Then I'm certain you won't object to my own medical personnel interviewing and examining the crews of the two ships in question. I'm afraid that's quite impossible, Captain, Quarantine regulations are very strict, you know. I see, Zavala said for a second time and cocked his head slightly. And just precisely, how long do you expect this quarantine period to continue, Governor duenas That's going to depend on the recommendations of my medical personnel. Duenius's smile turned thinner and considerably less affable. I'm afraid it could be... Quite lengthy, however. Particularly given the fact that there's no medical justification for it at all, you mean, Governor? Zavala's tone was even colder and more cutting than Duenius's smile had been. I'm sure I don't know what you're talking about, Captain, the system governor replied, his smile disappearing. It was the response he'd wanted, but he was more than a little taken aback by how soon he'd gotten it. This Zavala was obviously even more arrogant than he'd expected. I'm almost tempted to believe that, Governor, the Mante said lovely. That you can't give me a time estimate, I mean. I don't suppose anyone ought to be surprised that someone stupid enough to pull something like this in the first place is also too stupid to count weeks on his fingers and toes. Frankly, I'm astonished he can even manage to wipe drool off his own chin. Duanya stiffened. For a handful of heartbeats, sheer incredulity that anyone would dare speak that way to a Salarian-appointed governor held him motionless. His eyes widened in shock, and then he felt his face darken with a scalding flush of fury. "'I beg your pardon,' he bit out. "'You should,' Zavala said. "'And you should come up with better lies next time, too, Governor. I doubt this one would fly even back in old Chicago.' And somehow I don't think Permanent Senior Undersecretary McCartney is going to be very happy with you when this blows up as spectacularly as it's about to. What do you mean by that? Duenius demanded, his face still dark with rage, and Zavala shrugged. I mean, there's no medical emergency, and your quarantine is as bogus as it is stupid, Governor. You've chosen to unlawfully seize not one but two Manticoran merchantmen in flagrant disregard of several solemn treaties and at least two cardinal principles of interstellar law, and you've done it on a pretext you know would never stand up in any admiralty court. Your attempt to cloak your actions under the cover of a medical quarantine might fool a particularly credulous two-year-old, but no one else is going to believe it for a moment. I certainly don't, and my orders from Lady Goldpeak are very clear on this point.' And what might those orders be, Captain? Duenius's lips curled contemptuously, and Zavala shrugged. My instructions are to recover any unlawfully detained Manticoran vessels in this star system and to repatriate them to Manticoran space as expeditiously as possible, Governor. And just how do you intend to do that, Captain? Despite your own reckless language and contempt for a legally declared medical emergency— I have no intention of releasing quarantined vessels until I'm thoroughly convinced no health risk will result. Duenius locked eyes with the manticorn. There may be a difference of opinion about the validity of that medical emergency, Captain Zavala, but its legal standing is beyond dispute. Its legal standing is exactly zero, Governor, so let's not waste each other's time pretending otherwise, shall we? Under the Treaty of Beowulf... You're required to grant my medical personnel access in order to determine the legitimacy of your personnel's diagnosis. You've refused to do so, which means your declaration of quarantine has no legal standing whatsoever. I'm afraid I disagree with your legal interpretation on that point, Captain, Duenya said inflexibly. And absent instructions from higher authority, I'm also afraid I'll have to act on my own understanding of the circumstances and the treaty's provisions. "'I'll be happy to request those instructions, of course, but—' "'He smiled again, coldly. "'It will probably take some months to get clarification from Old Earth.' "'That's unacceptable, Governor,' Zavala said calmly. "'I'm afraid it's the best I can do, Captain, under the circumstances you understand.' "'Oh, I understand the circumstances better than you may believe I do, Governor.' With all due respect, however, I'm not certain you do. Meaning what, precisely, Captain? Meaning I'm under orders to repatriate those vessels as quickly as possible by any means necessary. And if you need me to be more specific, sir, any means necessary does include the use of force. Are you seriously proposing to commit an act of war against the Salarian League on its own territory? Duenius demanded. First, the Saltash system is not Solarian territory, Zavala replied. It's legally an independent star system, and the Solarian presence in it is legally solely to serve as a peacekeeping authority to prevent hostilities between the Republic of McPhee and the Republic of Lakhor. Although the Office of Frontier Security does enjoy certain administrative rights as a result of its agreements with McPhee and Lakhor, that doesn't make Saltash Solarian territory, no matter how much cash you squeeze out of it every tea year. Second, I'm not the one who's committed an act of war. You are. In the absence of a genuine and legitimate medical emergency to justify your so-called quarantine, your actions amount to piracy. And I might point out to you, sir, that piracy is a capital offence. And third, I'm not proposing to use force if you refuse to release my Star Nation's vessels and personnel peacefully. I'm promising to use force. Duenya stared incredulously at the officer in his display. Zavala looked extraordinarily—indeed, one might almost have said—insanely calm for a mere captain who'd just threatened a Salarian League governor in language like that— Duenas had anticipated intransigence—in fact, he'd counted on it—but he'd never contemplated the possibility that Zavala would step into his trap so quickly, and with such obvious contempt for the League in general, and Damian Duenas in particular. It cut deep, that contempt, coming from such a lowly officer in the neobarb navy of a pipsqueak little star nation with delusions of grandeur, and the governor felt his face flushing angrily once more. Should you attempt to carry out that outrageous and totally unacceptable threat, Captain, it will be the end of your career. I promise you that, and the consequences for your Star Nation's relations with the Solarian League will be severe. I doubt my career will suffer in the least, Governor. And even if I didn't, it would take a worse threat than that to prevent me from carrying out my instructions. And as for the Star Empire's relations with the League, I'll take my chances on that, too. To date, the League's been the instigator in every incident between the Star Empire and the League, including this one. And as my Empress and her government have attempted to make clear to old Chicago, the Star Empire of Manticore is not prepared to allow the Solarian League to kill its personnel, insult its sovereignty, or seize its merchant vessels. His eyes bored into Duenius's without reaction. If you refuse to respond to an effort to resolve this crisis you've provoked by peaceful means, then I'm prepared to assume you prefer a more bellicose resolution. In which case, Governor, my squadron and I are at your disposal. I've heard quite enough of this, Duanya snapped. Be advised, Captain, that in light of the threatening language you've seen fit to use in this conversation, I have no alternative but to continue that your vessels represent a hostile force. If you continue deeper into the star system, I will so regard your presence, and I will use all means at my disposal to resist your intrusion into Solarian protected space. And would all means at my disposal... Include the four indefatigable class battle cruisers, currently approximately five thousand three hundred kilometers this side of Shona Station, Governor. Dwayneus's jaw tried hard to drop at the Manticoran's level and undeniably contemptuous tone. Vice Admiral Dobroskaya had assured him that her vessels would be undetectable until the Mantis got far closer than they were. The fact that Zavala already knew they were there was bad enough. "'the fact that he was prepared to issue such threats "'knowing they were present, though. "'You might want to inform the local senior officer "'that I have complete tactical readouts on his vessels,' "'Zavala continued, "'including the fact that one of them is down a beta node "'in her forward impeller ring. "'I'm perfectly aware of their locations "'and also of the three destroyers "'hiding on the far side of Cinnamon's Moon. "'I'm not sure why you bother to hide those,' but I'm certain you had a reason that made sense to you, at any rate. To use your own turn of phrase, be advised that I'm as well aware of the Solarian forces currently deployed in the Saltash system as I am of the SLN's demonstrated proclivity for firing on unprepared vessels of sovereign star nations with no warning. In light of that demonstrated proclivity, please inform your local commander... "'that I entertain no doubt of my ability to engage and destroy all of his units "'if I should be forced to do so. "'And since you've seen fit to threaten my command with attack by all means at your disposal, "'I have no option but to consider your warships to be hostile units. "'As such, I require that they stand down immediately. "'They will power down their impeller nodes "'and shut down all tracking and targeting systems, "'and their personnel will immediately evacuate to the surface of Cinnamon.' And I should point out, Governor, that my sense or resolution of your vessels is more than adequate to determine their status and whether or not the life pods used to evacuate their crews are actually occupied. Assuming my requirements are met, your vessels will be left unmolested and you may reclaim them following our withdrawal from the star system. And precisely what do you intend to do if this pipe dream of yours fails to come to fruition? Duenius demanded furiously. "'If your crews haven't abandoned ship within the next twenty-seven minutes,' Zavala said with a flat, implacable calm, worse than any shouted threats, "'I will construe that as an indication of hostile intent, and I will open fire. "'The decision is yours, Governor. "'In either case, my ships will be in orbit around Cinnamon in approximately one and a half hours,' Whether or not any of your warships are still intact at that time is up to you. Good day. Duenas was still staring at the display in disbelief when it went suddenly blank.
0: That was Part 14 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, thanks to Laura Haywood Corey, and March to the Stars theme composer Ruth Judkowitz, Planetary Barrages of honor and thanks to Bain cover artist David Mattingly and to Science Fiction Classics curator Ron Miller. Please join us next time here at the hammering, shiver-me-timbering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.